Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Killer Hangover, where we talk about true crime and paranormal. And we normally drink alcohol, but we're recording in the morning this time, so... I didn't think my toddler's teacher wanted me showing up with alcohol on my breath. <sighs> so we're talking about... The we're talking state about Washington, of Washington. So we're drinking some of Seattle's best coffee. There you go. Some Perfect one match. of our favorite drinks, though, too. Let's just be honest. Coffee. Yes, in the morning, all the time, not at <laughs> night, <laughs> all the time. But please mention what beautiful mugs we are drinking this coffee. Yes, out of. we're drinking our delicious Seattle's best coffee out of mugs my sweet sweet husband had made for us. Thanks, honey. It has the great Killer Hangover logo that our my sister, not your sister, my sister, your daughter, drew for us on the mugs. They're awesome. Wait, I'm going to do a shout out to Alex for doing this because it was just such a surprise to get these. And yes, it, was it was so thoughtful. Oh, big shout out to you, Alex. Boom. Did you hear that? That was his head just exploding. Thanks, mom. <laughs> Uh, there's still room in there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, so Washington, what do you think of when you think of Washington, Mom? Mm, well, since I have family there, I, I love Washington. It has such a beautiful landscape, lots of things to do, lots of rain. So <laughs> I'm kind of a, <laughs> a sun gal, so I don't know if I'd want to live there. But a beautiful place to visit. absolutely love to go there. So when you said you wanted to cover this true crime story in Washington, the first thing that always comes to mind, it's a very traumatizing time in my life. I believe I was in the fifth grade and my mother decided to help me pick out a costume for the state fair. My state was Washington. Mother, what did you dress me as? May I add though? Before we go into the costume, oh that boy. my daughter always waited till the very last minute to finish her project. Still do. So this was <laughs> probably the night before where she said, Mom, <laughs> I don't have a costume and I need one. So Mom said, hmm, let me be creative here. <laughs> so I got a red trash bag my mother dressed me and made me into a giant red apple fifth grade most embarrassing photo of me with my curly frizzy hair buck teeth with glasses and this giant red trash bag as an apple hey it was filled up and we used her little brother's little caterpillar oh my counting God, caterpillar, caterpillar put a hole in it and had a caterpillar coming out of the um apple real cute it was so clever uh real cute <laughs> anyway so that was my traumatizing story of washington mom why don't you share with us a very traumatizing story about washington yes well first let me describe uh the green river which runs about 65 miles through Washington State. And if you look at pictures of the Green River, it's a beautiful landscape. 
But there's also a very dark and sinister picture to the river. Thanks not to nature, but to one man. Let me guess. The Green River Killer. Brilliant. Oh, I get it from you. (laughs) Thank you. On July 15th, 1982, the body of Wendy Cofield, age 16, was found in the Green River. On August 12th, the body of Deborah Bonner, age 23, was found in the river. Then on August 13th, Sheriff Reichert was called to a triple murder scene. The bodies of Cynthia Hines, 17, Opal Mills, 16, and Marcia Chapman, 31, had been found near the Green River. Semen was found in or on two of the victims, and, pay attention to this, little microscopic glass beads were found on the third. So So weird. Yeah, these little teeny beads, but remember that. Okay. Was there a serial killer on the loose? Seemed like all these girls had ties. On August 16th, a task force was established. The victims had a few things in common. They were young, they were slender, and they were sex workers or runaways that hung out along the SeaTac Strip. Oh, no. They all showed evidence of having had sex and then being strangled. I hate these stories. I hate when people, men or killers, take advantage of... Sorry, (laughs) go on. On April 30th, 1983, Marie Malvar, age... 18, a sex worker, does not return home. Now, her boyfriend stated that he saw her get into a pickup truck. I guess what they did was he always followed her wherever to protect her. So he did that. So he followed the truck, and as usual, as he usually did. But he lost the truck as it drove deeper into the woods. After four days and no Marie, he and Marie... Four days? Mm Mm-hmm. He and Marie's father went looking for the truck. They actually found it parked in a driveway and they called the police. Detectives spoke to the owner of the truck, a Gary Ridgway. He told them he had never met Marie and they found nothing suspicious about him or his story. So they didn't search his truck or his home. Oh, my gosh. The lead investigator, Sheriff Reichert, who I mentioned above, was not even aware of the incident until six months later. No. So it was just... No. Yeah. So it was in no records or anything. On November 20th, 1983, police tell the public that the same man killed 11 young women in King County since the summer of 82. So like a year and a half. In April... 11? 11. In a year and a half. In April of 84, five more skeletal remains are found. The count is now up to 20. By December 9th, the count is up to 42. Holy cow, it doubled. 28 identified bodies and 14 missing women. During this time, police are following leads and have several suspects. And this is just, to me, mind-blowing that they can even narrow this down. But anyway... But one by one, they proved not to be the killer. One man remained a suspect for quite a while until DNA testing determined he was innocent, which is way down the road. Mm-hmm. His name was Melvin Foster. He was a cab driver that worked on the strip and knew the women on the strip very well. Sure. 
He even called the police about two months after the victims were found and offered his help. Instead, it raised their suspicion because in the profile of the killer, it was said that he would interject himself into the investigation, but said that his offer was because he was, quote, the guardian of the street kids and wanted to help protect them. So at the end of the day, he probably really was just a good guy trying to help, right? Yeah, but he got... <laughs> but he w- he got screwed over. Well, <laughs> he did get screwed. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Mother. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he was brought in for questioning Ooh, several yeah, times. This is an alcohol shoot. <laughs> Where's the Baileys for this coffee? On one such time, he agreed to take a polygraph test, which he failed. Oh, no. Never um, a polygraph, though. That did not help his just... situation at all. and But he claimed it was because of his nervous tick that he had. And that's why he failed it. So, anyway, he is not above suspicion. He he got paid for being a guardian, let me just say that. Okay. So, he's not like... So, he's not a super cool... Superhero, but he's... No. Okay. But he's not a killer. You just say he's not super cool. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that? I don't know. <laughs> William Who are we talking about? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> William Stevens was another prime suspect. And this this was kind of, this guy is, I didn't see this guy, but I actually saw the uh, interview of his adopted uh, step or adopted brother, Bob Stevens, on, um, on an interview okay, um, so you saw <laughs> and you have another stroke it. over there you have <laughs> so you saw an interview of his stepbrother right okay and just to hear this he fit the fbi's profile of a serial killer he said he blamed the sex workers that worked the strip for spreading aids and according to Asshole. bob stevens his adopted brother Um, Williams had told many people he wanted to kill these women. Now, this is for the, not for the faint of heart. He wanted to chop them up. He wanted to fill them with rocks or concrete. In eight, in 89, when police searched his parents' home where he lived, they found pornographic material, pictures that he had taken of nude women. So please tell me that this guy... Even though, obviously, we know he's not the Green River Killer, but he was still put away, right? Like, he's this guy sick. is still a sicko. He's just Please sick. Please tell me he was still put away. You can be sick and not be put away. Uh. Receipts from stolen credit cards. In the garage, they found an arsenal of firearms. So maybe he was put away for that. I don't know. He owned a police car and an ambulance. Put him away. He is a poser. He's a freak. Which would have made it easy to approach these potential of victims. Course. Sure. He was later cleared for the killings because he said he was visiting his brother in Connecticut with his parents during the time of the killings, and he had receipts to prove it. But there was still some discrepancy there. So, moving on to another suspect, Gary Ridgway. Ah, remember that name? I know that name. You heard him. His name a short while ago. He was not totally unknown to the police. He had, in fact, been picked up several times for soliciting sex workers. (laughs) He even called in to speak to the task force to offer his ideas on the killer. In 83, police found Ridgway in his truck with Kelly McGinnis. They were both questioned and let go. What? She disappeared. Ridgway was brought in for questioning. And at one time, he took a polygraph test and... 
passed. This is why polygraphs just, they're just not, oh, they're not reliable at all. At another, he was asked to bite onto a piece of gauze. Now, remember, DNA testing was not a real science at the time, so right. these police were really thinking ahead. It's so hard for me to wrap that around because right now it's just... It's a thing. I it's mean, a it's a thing. Yeah, it's, it's just it's a how we're putting everybody away. Yep. He was agreeable to everything and complied, and the police, you know, everything that the police asked of him. So, you know, it's like, hey, I got nothing to hide. So in 1984, Sheriff Reichert received a letter from then incarcerated Ted Bundy. <gasps> he writes that he can get into the mind of Riverman. Oh, jeez. Reichert goes down to Florida to interview Bundy. So I was listening to the book about that Sheriff Reichert wrote about this. Mm-hmm. I was listening to it instead of reading it and it was cool because you could actually hear the interview with Bundy oh wow so that was that was neat so Bundy always spoke in the third person yeah always and you can hear that during the interview it's pretty obvious that he's describing some things that he had done Mm -hmm. in his own murders but some things were insightful for instance Bundy said that it was very probable the killer was revisiting the dump sites to have sex with the victim's corpse. Yeah. And if a new grave was found, police should stake it out and wait for him to come back. Right. The police actually did try this, but the media caught on. <gasps> oh, and so they had it. all their vehicles and everything else there. And so it was in vain. I mean, it wouldn't have worked. So for the most part, it was evident that Bundy did not have much to contribute. And that it was it was his attempt to stay his execution. He's just trying to stay relevant. <laughs> yeah, that's another story. <laughs> that's another Washington. St- well, no, he kind of bounced around. That's another story that's in another general. Story for sure. Rebecca Garde Gard came uh, comes forward and says that Ridgeway tried to strangle her one night two years previously it was now november 1982 and she had just gotten off her telemarketing job and was walking home it was cold and wet and so she decided to hitchhike a maroon dodge pickup we've heard that description before stopped to give her a ride the driver was quote a boring and dull looking man so she hopped in so average trustworthy yeah Probably below average, actually. Right. Right. She was short on cash, so she told the man she would have sex with him for 20 bucks. He pulled into a road that led into the woods, but they were by a trailer park. When they got out, he attacked her and started strangling her. She fought for her life and somehow was able to push the attacker against a tree so hard that it stunned him. She ran into she ran to a trailer and banged on the door until the owner a- answered. It took her two years to report the incident because she didn't think the police would believe her because so sad. she was known for her drug use and she was a sex worker. Right. On December of 84, she finally told her police story to the police and identified Ridgeway. October 2001, DNA, yay. Yay. Link Seaman left in, in the victims to the saliva swab taken by the police. And on November 30th, Ridgway was arrested as he walked out of the Kenworth Truck Factory, where he worked as a spray painter. Mm. That's important. 
The four victims that the DNA evidence linked him to were Marcia Chapman, Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines, and Carol Christensen. Three other victims, Wendy Cofield, Deborah Bonner, and Deborah Estes, were added to the indictment. Remember those microscopic beads? Yes. They were identified as microscopic spray paint spheres from the specific brand and composition of paint that was used at the Kenworth factory. And I, they can figure that out now with I DNA think it's and so testing, all this cool stuff. cool, though, how everything just tied it all together like yeah. that. So on November 5th, 2003, Ridgway entered a guilty plea to 48 charges of aggravated first-degree oh murder gosh. as part of the plea bargain. He would give the location of the remains of his victims and provide other detail. He <sighs> would not receive the death penalty in exchange for that. This was really the only way to give some peace to the families of these poor women. Ridgway said that he began each murder by picking up a sex worker. He would show the woman a picture of his son sometimes if she was kind of reluctant to get in his truck. He would use a picture of his son to make her trust him more. After some time after or sometime during the sex, Ridgway would strangle her from behind. Mm. At first, he used his hands, but after getting scratched and bruised from the women trying to defend it, he started using ligatures. After the woman was dead, he would take his money back. Of course. And then dump her body, but always identifying the landmarks to himself. Of course. And this was so he could come back to have sex with the bodies. Yeah, I knew that. Bundy was right on that count. Ridgway explained that... stick together. Ridgway explained that he did not find necrophilia more sexually satisfying, but it did reduce his need to get a living victim and thus reduced his chances of getting caught. Mm-hmm. He was thinking ahead. Oh, my God. So a little bit on Ridgway. He was married three times. His first marriage lasted a year. He had a son with his second wife, but she divorced him after seven years. At the time of his arrest, he was married to his third wife, and was living a normal life in a quiet neighborhood. These poor women. Uh, neighbors described him as a nice stand-up guy that would help you out. All his wives did say that he was obsessed with sex and wanted it several times a day. His third wife told police, and this is creepy to me, that Ridgeway liked to have sex outside, and they would often go to the woods or by the river to have sex. She took the police to these spots, and they turned out to be <gasps> just yards from where the oh bodies no. had been. Oh my gosh. This thing seemed to give Ridgway a thrill because he also did this with his son. Wait, what? Being a divorced father, he had his son every other weekend. They often went camping, hiking, and riding bikes along the Green River. In 82, Ridgway picked up a woman with his son in the truck. They drove to the woods. He left his son in the truck and murdered the woman in the woods. Then when he went back to the truck, he told his son that she wanted to walk home. How old is this boy? I'm not sure how he was. I mean, he was just a little tyke then. Oh, my On gosh. another occasion, he had sex with one of the victim's corpses as his son slept in the truck 30 feet away. Oh, my. When I'm des- like sick to my stomach. I know. When describing his father, though, Ridgeway's son said, because he had no clue, said... He was always a relaxed man who never yelled at me. 
and who took me camping and taught me to play baseball and always showed up for my school concerts and soccer practices. So, like, which is worse, you think? You, you're you naive to everything and you don't know, and then as you get older, you find out who your dad really is? Or you know all Or you along. grow up and your dad's, like, an asshole to you, and you don't like him from the beginning, and so this doesn't really come as a surprise, I you don't know? know? I you, don't you're know. hurt either way. It just... Oh, my heart breaks for him. Yeah. A reporter for KOMO News Radio said this about Ridgeway. The strange thing about Gary Ridgeway is if you don't know the depravity, if you don't know the evil that this man committed, you would have absolutely no clue when you talk to him on the phone. He sounds like he would be the perfect neighbor. And his voice actually on the interviews and stuff was very, wow, very calm, very low key, very quiet. Yeah. Mark Prothero, I hope I'm saying that right, Prothero, he was Ridgway's lawyer, had the following to say. I came up with a term, psychofrugal path. <laughs> psychofrugal path. He was kind of cheap a to, to a psychotic degree psychopathic degree when you ask him why you would kill the girls he would say because he would get his money back oh my gosh i know so psychofrugal path psychofrugal path it's actually really fun to say it's like buddy the elf or francisco <laughs> psychofrugal path <laughs> cotton-headed ninny muggins <laughs> Okay, sorry. <laughs> Ridgeway has admitted to killing upwards of 71 women. My gosh. This is not proven to be true, though. And he's quoted as saying, killing women was my career. What? And there you go. Gary Ridgeway, ladies and gentlemen. <sighs> that is terrifying. Sad. Scary. All of it. I think it's just so sick that I heard, um, I think I was listening to another podcast about him a while ago, and he would just drive into work, and he would, because he'd know where he'd bury the, he'd bury them in, like, clumps, right? He he wouldn't, he'd try to bury them near each other. Near each other. And so he would, like, drive to work, and he'd know there's, like, four bodies buried over there by that tree, and he would just, like, look at that tree as he drove to work and, like, get off on that and just love knowing that, that, that just, it's so sick so sad nope you agree Obi? i i was uh talking about the book that sheriff uh reichert wrote and yes. i need to reference that it's called uh, chasing the devil okay published in july tw- uh, 28th 2004 by little brown and company and if you get a chance to listen to it do so and you can hear the bundy interview as well I as would... the interviews with ridgeway oh i would really so Calm down, dogs. Excuse the dogs. <laughs> Obi has a little bit to say about this. That would be really cool to hear those interviews. I really enjoyed that um, Netflix documentary. Doc- <laughs> documentary? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Obi. That Netflix documentary with uh, Bundy's interviews in it. Oh, yeah. 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 It's He's he's interesting. We'll do him. Yeah. All right. So we ready to talk some hauntings? Of course. Okay. I decided to do something for you, Miss Theatrical Actress. I am going to cover the Moore Theater 
in Seattle, Washington. Okay. This theater is the oldest still active theater in Seattle. It actually celebrated its 100 years in 2,200, 2007. Oh my. So it's, okay. So it's, I mean, I can't do the math off the top of my head because I'm not very good at math, but that's a hundred plus years. (laughs) That's safe. Okay, so this theater is located at 1932 2nd Avenue. It's about two blocks from the Pike's Place Market. Just going to ask you that, okay. You were going to ask how far is it from Pike's Place? I don't know Seattle. (laughs) No, that's not. I was just saying, is it anywhere around Pike's Place? I wouldn't have known if I didn't have it in my notes. Okay, so this theater was the original home to the Seattle Symphony and the Seattle International Film Festival. Oh. It's currently operated by the Seattle Theater Group. Uh, I found a lot of the history of the theater actually on their website, stgpresents.org. So the theater opened in 1907. It was built by, quote, a flamboyant Seattle real estate developer, (laughs) James A. Moore. It was built with grand architect. Wow, this coffee is like drying my mouth out. I'm sorry. (laughs) It was built with grand architecture, mosaic floors, stained glass, ivory marble, and gold decor. Sounds beautiful, actually. Lavish. It was a very lavish. Cannot say this. It was a very lavish social venue. Say lavish social. (laughs) Say it. Lavish social venue. Okay. You've got it. With first class attractions, stage acts, movies, boxing, concerts, lectures, art exhibits, rallies, graduations, and more. Wow. Excellent. Yes. So the theater has had its ups and downs and has changed hands a few times until the Seattle Theater Group took over. They did a massive renovation in 2013 to keep the arts alive. I'd love to see this place now. I'd love to hear that they're just keeping the arts alive. Okay, so now let's talk hauntings. So there's no traumatic events in the theater or the attached hotel. No fires, no suicides, no deaths. So where do the ghosts come in, you ask? Mm, They wanted to watch a play. (laughs) Exactly, though. So I read this article, and I kind of agree with it. Um, It was on ghostlyactivities.com. And they they said that, you know, positive events can create emotions to link to the spirit world as well. Oh. So you got to think, like, maybe an actress had her debut there. And that's just where her... She just loved performing there or... Oh, so she has passed on, but she wanted to revisit. She just loved performing there or say there was somebody in the audience who was just moved by a performance. Maybe they're there. They're there watching. Wow. (laughs) I've never heard that. Yeah. So I guess the kind of, you know, maybe that's where they come in too. Maybe it doesn't have to be some traumatic, scary thing. Maybe it's a good thing too. I don't know. Something to think about. So... Also, though, apparently in the 1970s, while the theater was a movie theater, the owners walked in on a few employees doing a seance. The workers were fired right there on the spot before ending the seance, though. Bad. (laughs) So it is believed that the portal remains open. That's just, you know, 
maybe that has something to do with it too who knows oh, anytime you mess with that stuff yeah which I love to do you hate no <laughs> bad girl bad I'm not a dog <laughs> So lots of shadow figures are seen in the aisles, sitting in the seats. One seat is apparently occupied by the original owner, the flamboyant James A. Moore. Oh. It smells of cigar smoke. The seat has been cleaned and even reupholstered. And, and it still smells like cigars. Oh, how fun. <laughs> An employee was interviewed on the show Ghost Hunters. So good old taps. Do you remember right? that show? Yep, I do. So I watched the episode and so she, (laughs) she was interviewed and she said that one night while she was closing and turning off all the lights, she saw a woman in a flowy ball gown walk across the stage and into a wall like all women in ball gowns do, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember the one time I wore a ball gown. I walked into a wall too. (laughs) I can't tell you the last time I ever wore a ball gown, but... So even though ghosts and shadow figures are seen throughout the building, no one has been able to capture it on video or photos. Even good old taps. They witnessed flashing lights and orbs with their own eyes, but their camera never picked any of it up. Okay, that's weird in itself. So like they walked away from the episode. I don't like spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. If you go and watch this episode, it's episode uh, season three, episode 15. Fast forward like 15 seconds if you don't want to hear what I'm about to say. But they literally walked away saying that the place wasn't like necessarily they felt they felt presences, but it wasn't like this huge haunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but then that couple of the other guys were like, well, I felt something the whole time. Like this place is totally haunted. But the main guys, I don't know their names. I'm not very I'm, I don't remember their names. I'm terrible with names. They they were like, yeah, no, I think it's just like an electrical currents that people are feeling, like stuff like that. Oh. But then there's two people that sat in the audience and like were watching the stage and they saw flashing lights on the stage and, and they felt something. So I think it just, I don't know, maybe the ghost didn't show themselves to everybody. But it's so weird that they saw orbs. Yes, they saw they, them. Which is totally opposite and the camera was than pointing what usually. To the, cam- the point, the camera was pointing to the stage. And they're sitting in the audience and they're like, did you see that flashing light? Do you see the? Do you see that moving in the back over there? And they went to go watch their camera and, and nothing, nothing. So and they both saw it. So it's not like just one person was having eye problems. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so even though visual and evidence, even though visual evidence isn't captured, EVPs have been pretty prevalent. Uh, phantom singing is oh. heard. Lots of footsteps and there's an EVP captured, not by taps, but by somebody else of an audience applause. And no one's there. Even happening. Yeah. That's so cool. Oh, that is awesome. So an anonymous, I went online and was like trying to get some fun stories of like haunts there. And so I have a couple, uh, an anonymous writer on the good death blog wrote, I and a friend were hired. (laughs) That's what it says. It says, I and a friend were hired to watch the equipment. Not a friend and I. Right. (laughs) (laughs) English, English. But that's what they said. So, I and a friend were hired to watch the equipment. 
already set up on stage overnight before a large gig by a prominent Seattle rock band back in the 90s. We brought sleeping bags, etc. for the stay, but never had a chance to sleep. Constant footsteps, running, walking, and shuffling, as well as a door in the orchestra pit being opened and closed only to run quickly to the door and it being locked. No other people in the more but us believe what you want. (laughs) and then another blogger wrote that during one of the performances they went to go watch one of the statues on the stage like i said there's like big statues and you know it's very lavish right right so one of the statues faces on the stage almost like warped in front of her and her husband's eyes while they're watching the performance and her husband is a non-believer so basically like one of our husbands (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) So this is a quote from her story. The theater, the theater crescendos in a dome shape that is punctuated with several statues of women, almost Grecian. Midway through the show, one of the faces of the women began to look populated to me. That's the only way I can think to describe it. Then after a few minutes, the face seemed less like that of a Grecian lady and more like a crusty sailor with a beard and hardened features. It wasn't so much like the statue transformed as it gave off that impression. I elbowed Mike to ask him if he was seeing what I was seeing without telling him what I was seeing. And he said, very deadpan. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The populated statue just looked at us for the rest of the show. It wasn't frightening. In fact, I don't even remember having any particular emotion about it, except maybe curiosity. After the show, we compared notes and it seemed like we had indeed had the same experience. Oh my gosh. So this crusty old sailor just looked at them the rest of the show. I guess. He was there maybe watching the show. <laughs> just standing in front of the statue so nobody saw him, I guess. <laughs> I'm going to hide here. But, but instead of I, watching the show, they watch and watch the watch audience. <laughs> That's more interesting. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So there's also a large boxed-in area uh, near the balcony where now employees watch shows. Okay. And back in the day, it held its own unfortunate history. It was the colored section. I don't want people getting mad at me for calling it that. That's what it was called in its day. I obviously do not agree with this at all. But historically, that's what this area was called and what it was used for. So it doesn't have any seats. It's just ledges to sit on or to stand in. And employees have noted that while they're up there watching the show, it always feels very, very crowded. So even if it's one or two employees there watching the show or just even one, they feel like they're getting pressed against the edge. They just feel like there's a ton of people in there with them. Oh, wow. And that's just and even the TAPS guys felt that, too. It just feels overcrowded, overwhelmed. Like, yeah. Wow. So another person noted, too, that while in this area, their camera wouldn't work at all. It worked in other areas. But as soon as they go back into the box, our camera wouldn't work. But then they stepped out and it would. Mm -hmm. In other areas of the the theater. Interesting. So that is the haunting of the Moore Theater in Seattle, Washington. I am so going to go there. (laughs) Next visit, I'm going there. I did this one for you. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah. And it's the pictures are beautiful of the whole theater and like what the lobby looks like and just all the decor. And they really did a really great job from the photos. It just 
step back in time, like, I bet it's really cool. They do a lot of different performances. Hell, that you could go like see it, yeah. a, uh, a boxing match. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Mom. I think I'll <laughs> not do that one. <laughs> wow, that w- that's fascinating. You know, yeah. I would be surprised if if there are theaters that are not haunted. I mean, sure. You know, yeah, I, just, I agree with you. I've acted on a lot of stages, and I think a lot of them have some kind of residual energy. I think I, think I agree. I think... And I think I agree because of what I read in that article, though I think maybe an actress just had a great performance and so she just likes to be on that stage or not even great performance. They just love performing there or even somebody that was behind the scenes that just loved doing the costumes or loved doing the makeup. And that's just where it's like residual energy that just kind of stays. And Mm -hmm. so that's I think that was a really good point. I don't necessarily think the seance had anything to do with it because I don't, there was no, doesn't feel like negative, negative negative hauntings. Exactly. No negative energy. Right. So, yeah. Well, it's hard to kill us actors. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. We like to linger. (laughs) Break a leg. (laughs) Okay. Well, this was episode five, mom. It was fun. Yes, it was. And we did it sober. (laughs) you guys being sober (laughs) my dog right now is snoring through this i hope i'm not boring you guys (laughs) you can join us next monday we will release our sixth episode yes where are we going to go we are going to go. <laughs> we will be covering Missouri. Oh, so we actually are going to be there. <laughs> we actually are going to Missouri. <laughs> It'll be the first time we're Since actually. that's where I live, <laughs> we're going to Missouri and covering Missouri next Monday. Excellent. Um, yes. So excited. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Yes. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, which we hope you do, we would love, love, love a positive review That would really help us out and email us. If you have fun stories of where you live too, give us some like haunted theaters, more haunted theaters, more (laughs) haunted homes or sinister stories. We'd love love to hear hear your stories. We would absolutely love that. And you can email us at killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and we are on Twitter. I'm learning Twitter. I mean, I'm not like, no offense, I'm not as old as my mother, but I still don't understand Twitter. I don't, I'm 31. I don't, I probably should. So we are there. Be patient with me. I'm learning it. So find us on all of our social media. This was fun, mom. Yes, it was. (laughs) All right, let's cheers our new mugs. Don't, don't break them. Don't break them. (laughs) I'll have to get more. (laughs) Cheers, mama. Love you, kid.